Okay. Let me uh, let me start some prayer. We'll get going. All right. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity again this Sunday morning to hear from your word and to study together in community. We ask that your spirit would bless us, Lord, as we um, study and help us to understand what's going on, understand more about you and about this uh, incredible story that we've been learning about. And God, as always, if any corrections needed may be done in gentleness and love. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Okay, we are in Genesis chapter 47. We'll start at verse 28 today. Or verse 27, I mean, verse 27. Um, so we're at the end of the book of Genesis. There's only three chapters left. And we're reaching the conclusion of the Jacob and Joseph narratives. Israel and his family have journeyed from the promised land of Canaan to the land of Egypt due to the worldwide famine. Um, through Joseph's, uh, I guess we'd say, novel tactic of convincing his family to tell Pharaoh the truth about their occupations, uh, Joseph is able to secure the land he wanted for his family, the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh gives Israel the land of Goshen, and there they are provided for by Joseph in uh, can be a separate people from the people of Egypt. In last chapter, we, for the most part, left the family of Israel to see how Joseph ruled the land during uh, of Egypt during the famine. And the narrator gave us this uh, detailed account of how Joseph navigated the famine in order to save the people of Egypt. Um, of course, the people of Egypt, uh, they had to sell all their property, um, give all their money, their... their uh, animals in their land and even themselves in order to survive the famine for food. But at the end of the passage, we saw that the people were grateful to Joseph because they believed that he saved their lives, even after all of that. Um, so the people of Egypt survived. Pharaoh's power is maintained through a massive famine. We see that the nation of Egypt is uh, unified and brought under the power of Pharaoh in a very concrete way. And the one-fifth tax on the farmland of Egypt that was instated for this famine uh, will continue on. Uh, the people of Israel survived the famine in Egypt, and they grew and grew and grew in the land of Goshen. Okay, so now we're back to the people of Israel in the story of uh, Jacob and Joseph. All right. Now, okay, we'll begin in verse 27. Verse 27 says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Um, and I wanted to read a, a quote from Alter that I think I read last week, but I think it's helpful. Uh, Just as Joseph was in the lap of Jacob 17 years, Jacob was in the lap of Joseph 17 years. So Joseph was in the care of his father for 17 years, and so was Jacob in the care of Joseph for 17 years. And one more way to put it, Joseph spent 17 years in Canaan, and Jacob spent 17 years in Egypt. Um, and we see Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac lived to be 180. Jacob does not live to be quite as old as either of them. But it still would have been many years in the eyes of the Egyptians uh, who thought 110 years was uh, a respectable feat 
because you remember that Pharaoh was impressed by the age of Jacob uh, back when they first met. Uh, so Jacob is at the end of his life. He's at around 147 years. And we see, we continue on and see Jacob at the end of his life here, verse 29. We're going to see the story um, between Jacob and Joseph. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Okay. Um, first, putting your hand under someone's thigh was a way to make a solemn oath. We've seen it before. Kind of this awkward way to make an oath. Um, do you, Jonathan, do you remember where we saw it? I just, I just, I heard acknowledgement for you, from you, so I thought maybe you might. That's all right. That's all right. It's, uh, eight, back in, it was like chapter 24 or something. Uh, Abraham made his servant make an oath before he went to get a wife for Isaac and he put his hand under his thigh. So it's something that seems to be passed down. Is that the only one I can think of? Huh. Okay. Yeah. You would think it would be more common. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. I just don't remember. Maybe it's all. Yeah, yeah, you might be right. Swearing a solemn oath is really something, so it probably wasn't that common because it was very special. It would be special. That's a good point. Yeah, it would be a, a special oath um, taken seriously. Okay. Now, Jacob, okay, Jacob really does not want to be buried in Egypt. Um, why doesn't Jacob want to be buried in Egypt? What do you think? Okay, he wants to be buried with his forefathers. Okay, so God gave him the land of Canaan. He wanted to be in the land that God gave him. Um, and so we um, see that he, he seems to have, he has a connection with the land, obviously, and he wants to um, seems to be interested in trusting in more than usual the, well, I shouldn't say more than usual, maybe, but he's trusting in the promises that God made about this land and he wants to be there. I think it's uh, an expression of faith in the covenant. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, it's, I would agree. Um, I, Jacob seems to be, he, he seems a little like this whole passage that we're going to read. Jacob seems to be like a little more, I don't know, trusting, faithful, something, you know, just in in the promises of God than we've seen he's from him. Years he's, had, he's had some time and some practice. <laughs> Good. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, but if I can get back where I'm going. Get back there. And so we're understanding a little bit more of the hesitancy maybe that he had when he first traveled to Egypt and God had to meet him um, at, oh man, Beersheba, thank you. Yes. And God had to meet him Beersheba and reassure him, it's okay, go. Right. Um, but Jacob wants to be where God has promised um, 
to give his the land his to his descendants and where his forefathers are. And uh, and what do you say? Almost jealous of these folks sometimes. I mean, you know, how many times you're like, well, should I really be doing this? Yeah, it's not how we have to. It's not how we have to make decisions. We yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Joan, I think I heard you ask. You forget the the name exactly. The the site name was, I think, well, I have it here in English, but Machpella, Machpella, <laughs> um, and that's that's where the burial burial site was for the family. Um, Walkie notes to the end. Jacob remains committed to the faith of his fathers, expressed by his commitment to his of his body to the promised land. Um, and here, maybe I don't, I don't know if you see. A uh, different translation than what you're reading. Um, when it says uh, that Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Um, well, first of all, the, the Hebrew verb, and that Bible has a couple helpful notes here. The Hebrew verb normally means bow down, especially worship or prayer. And so here it might simply mean bend low, perhaps from weakness or approaching death. The narrative is ambiguous at this point. It remains open to all these interpretations. And then it gives a textual note. Where it says the Masoretic text reads better couch. The Septuagint reads uh, staff or rod. And it interprets this to mean that Jacob bowed down in worship while leaning on the top of his staff. Uh, the Septuagint reading was used in turn by the writer of the letter to the Hebrews in Hebrew, uh, Hebrews 11, 21. Um, if, if some of you guys remember this moment in Hebrews 11, 21, we'll talk about, it talks about the faithfulness of Jacob. It uses, uh, this moment in Jacob's life to be an example of his, of his faith. Um, okay. Let's continue on in chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. And so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. Um, and I bur- buried her there on the way to, to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Okay, so there's, let's talk about this. First, I want to know, you, uh, you see the language here used to describe Jacob. Um, he's struggling to sit up in bed. Um, and speak to his son. He's he's an old man here. He's at the end of his life, um, close to dying. J- Joseph seems to sense that this is an important time. So he brings his sons with him, Manasseh, who is the older, and Ephraim, who is the younger. Um, and you also see, again, Israel and Jacob, the name switching back and forth. Um, that's gonna That just keeps happening here. One point calls him Israel, one point calls him Jacob. At one point, he talks about Israel moving to the land of Goshen, and you don't really know if he's talking about the tribe or Jacob, but it could refer to both, just back and forth. 
All right. <clears throat> so Jacob recalls the blessing of the Lord at Bethel, that the land would be theirs forever and they would be made a great nation. And Jacob wants to pass down that blessing through Joseph's sons. OK, so so what does Jacob do here? Um, what, what, what does he do? What, what's going on? Because it's kind of strange. It sounds like he's adopting his Joseph's sons, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So that would be that would be like my dad adopting uh adopting Liam. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> you didn't ask him. You didn't ask him. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? I thought Joseph was in charge. Jacob knows he's not going to be around much longer. And so I think if your dad was adopting Liam and you knew you weren't going to be around much longer. Yeah, I knew he wasn't going to be around, my dad. Yeah. And if you knew, no, if you knew. Yeah, yeah, if you knew your dad wasn't going to be around much longer and he adopted him, that just means Liam's going to get the inheritance. Okay, good. So that that's the next question. Why does Jacob do this? What does this adoption accomplish? Let's talk about that. So Ken just mentioned it. Um, Liam would get the inheritance. Okay, so Manasseh and Ephraim are, he's ensuring that they would get the inheritance. Um, the inheritance, uh, he, he compares them to which two sons? Of, of Jacob's. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Reuben's the oldest, right? Yeah, those are the two oldest. Those are the two oldest. Yeah. They're just as much as Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, he's ensuring them the inheritance, um, as if they were the two oldest sons. I wonder sons. if this is a foreshadowing of the fact that usually when we talk about the 12 tribes, mm-hmm. as far as land is concerned, it is Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, it's not Joseph. Well, here's what. Okay, I think. Um, let me see if this is the right note. Um, all right. Let me. So I. I think the the Net Bible gives a couple notes here that are, are pretty helpful in understanding what this kind of why he's mentioning Reuben and Simeon. Why they're you know why them and not the other sons. All right. So um, first of all. Um, Jacob here is adopting his two grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, as his sons. And so they will have equal share with the older other brothers. They will be in the place of Joseph and, as we know, of Levi, who will become a priestly tribe in the settlement of the land. Um, and so he um, – this means – so listed under the names of their brothers and in their inheritance. This means that the subsequent children of Joseph will be incorporated in the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. All right. And so essentially what J- Jacob is doing is he get, he's giving the double portion of the inheritance that would be given to the firstborn son. And he's given it to Joseph. And that double inheritance is going to be split to Ephraim and Manasseh. And so that's how legally this is working. OK, so this is a legal adoption. And this is how the inheritance is going to be fairly distributed to Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh. Fairly is a fine word, I guess, but but uh, Joseph is given this special blessing. Legally, legally, it's a legal adoption and a legal um, 
inheritance distribution distribution. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's all, when you just read over, it, it's kind of a weird thing what's going on here, but it's, um, Jacob is, is doing something intentional. Um, he's making sure Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, have, uh, a share of the land. And, and then there's, then there's verse seven, um, which doesn't seem to be related at all. Um, but I think, uh, Robert Alter has a helpful commentary that, that helps us understand maybe why Jacob is saying this whole thing about Rachel after all this. He says, uh, um, when it says, as for me, when I was coming from Padan, uh, Rachel died. At first glance, Jacob's com- comment about the death of Rachel seems like a non sequitur. Um, it doesn't really seem to follow. It is, however, a loss to which he has never been reconciled. And this loss is surely on his mind when he tells Pharaoh that his days have been few and evil. His impulse to adopt Rachel's two grandsons by her firstborn expresses a desire to compensate symbolically and legally for the additional sons she did not live to bear. Um, that's his that's his take on why he's including this whole section about his sorrow about Rachel uh, passing on when he was trying to uh, come to the land. Um, and so importantly here, as I'll mention, it's a, it's a legal uh, event that's occurring. Um, and so Ephraim and Manasseh will get the inheritance. We'll continue on. Verse 8. Joseph's not oh. erased in the sense. I, mean, you don't, I don't know any where it's ever by land that he's mm-hmm. referred to as important a lot. But there are a couple of times there's these gates of the city in Ezekiel and the of the 144,000, one of them is referred to as of Joseph or whatever. So it's not like he's completely erased from the 12. It's just that normally when there's, you get to probably, with Levi not having land, that they need two more. It's interesting seeing how this happens because you always hear of Manasseh and Ephraim. But not Joseph, and so it's uh, so it's it's not it's actually uh, helpful to see. Oh, there's a legal transaction here that explains why Joseph is not one of the tribes, and instead Ephraim and Manasseh are. Uh, um, both that, those gates and 144,000 Levi is mentioned. So if they mentioned Manasseh and Ephraim, then you'd be up to 13. So it's back to Joseph. <laughs> yes, Joseph, that's good. Joseph's back to yeah, you're you're right about that. <laughs> Ken, yeah. I mean, I wonder about that because Joseph is so much an Egyptian at this point. Um, he still has faith in Yahweh. Um, he still is very much in the, involved in the life of his family. Um, but I do wonder that if that's if that's part of why uh, 
Jacob make sure this happens? Or so when when we when they finally leave Egypt, I assume that um, uh, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, leave with the Israelites. Oh, no, no, no. I mean they're, they're descendants. Yes. Yes. No. Yeah. No. I. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wanted the same thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but the same thought came to my mind as well. Yeah. Well, uh, Joseph is still well regarded. I mean, like I said, he was, he's mentioned among the, on the twelve. Yeah. When they talk about the gates. Yes. Ezekiel and when the hundred forty-four thousand are, are listed, under twelve of one, you know, twelve thousand from Judah and twelve thousand from Joseph. Not, 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 yeah, because my understanding probably is because this Levi is mentioned in, in each of those cases, so. Yeah, I mean, it, and, but that's kind of looking forward and then bringing that back I here. It's a funny you know, question. I mean, jo- Joseph is still really one of, one of them. Uh, um, for, uh, well, yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying he's yeah, not. Yeah. Um, but I do wonder how much his, you know, being the position he is in in Egypt. Uh, has, has affected the decision, but it doesn't really tell us that that's why. I mean, it does give us this explanation of Rachel, though. Yeah. <clears throat> the, the whyness of this, if you can say it that way, might be different in Jacob's mind than in God's plan. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Jacob has no reason to think, oh, it's got to be 12, not 11. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely not 14. Right. Uh, it can't. He doesn't think like that. Right. He's, so I like the, the thing you said about the this is giving a double um, inheritance to Joseph mm-hmm. since he has um, saved the whole family. Yeah. So that's probably the way Jacob's thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. The readers are thinking about it in terms of, oh, that's why we have Ephraim and Manasseh instead of Joseph. Right. Uh, and, and of course, they all stay in Egypt, as we know at the beginning of Exodus. So stay for a long time. It's not really a question of whether. <laughs> Joseph stays behind and everybody else goes back to the promised land. They're not going to get there for quite some time. Right. It is interesting, though. This is not um, um, a, a passage that I have made the connection with Ephraim and Manasseh and, and everything. I don't know. It's just uh, it's, it was fun going through this and seeing um, kind of it being revealed. Maybe like the reader saw it, too. Oh, that's why it's Ephraim and Manasseh. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's keep going. When Israel saw Joseph's sons... He said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. Um, Does this sound familiar to anything we've studied before? Isaac. Yeah. how, how do they compare these these two meetings? Well, the elder <laughs> <laughs> recognize easily who was uh-huh. in front of him. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean there's no uh, there's not a deception going on here. There's not a deception going on. That's a big that's a big part of it. Jacob remembers that at this point. Yeah. And Joseph is really characterized by honesty in these last few passages where he's involved in things. There's not deception involved. Yeah. And Jacob treats this differently too, as we as we see as well. Um Okay, and, and again, we see that even though Joseph has lived in Egypt for a long time, he still remembers uh, God. 
what he has done for him. And we remember when he, when Manasseh and Ephraim were born, he, he named them Manasseh and Ephraim, even though he was in, in Egypt and it was just him at the time. He still named them names that reminded uh, him of God's work in his life. And Manasseh means something like God has made me forget the ills of my past. And Ephraim means something like God has made me fruitful. Um, verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Um, Okay, so... First of all, let's ask, how, how old are Ephraim and Manasseh? So that we, Ephraim and Manasseh were born right before the famine. So we think about how old they are. Famine lasted seven years. And then there's at least 17 years between, somewhere around 17 years between the famine and now. Okay, so they're, they're maybe. Okay, okay, so he takes them off his knees. <laughs> Yeah, so he's not, they're not literally. Or, for example, Ishmael, when Hagar and Ishmael are thrown out and it says she took the child and threw him yeah. in the bush and all that sort of thing. But, you know, he's a, he's a young man. Right. Um, so yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's so weird. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's why he died. I uh, yeah, it's it's so when we're picturing this. I mean, we even see this in the pictures here. They're in these paintings. They're depicted as, as uh, very young, um, but they're they're probably in their late teens, early early twenties would be my guess. Um, and so they're not not quite this young, um, where they would be on Joseph's literally on Joseph's knees. Um, but they, we we do see in the picture, especially. Uh, how do you say that? Chagall's picture? Chagall? Um, the crossing of the hands. Uh, Joseph would have been young enough to have been Joseph's knees. I don't know. Even, I mean, he's, he's what? In his, how, old is, how old is Joseph here? 60s? Or is it, is it more than that? No, I don't think he's that old. No, he's not. So why, why is that? 17. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to say 56. That number is coming to my head for some reason. So I'm going to say it. 56. Yeah. <laughs> That's still pretty, yeah. What, so what is this that Joseph removed him from his knees? Well, what do you think it is? If it's not literal. Chagall has them kneeling in front and leaning on Jacob. And in fact, Chagall looks but, like they're. But it says Joseph removed them. Joseph removed them from Jacob's knees. Well, if, it, if it's not a literal, like, oh, Joseph removed them from. Oh, you're saying that's Jacob's knees. I see. Okay. Okay, I mean, that's what, one way it took it. I, I took it as more of a, a, a metaphorical that he's, he's removing them from the place of. Uh, 
being with him and giving them to his father. Um, but it could be either one. Sure. I, I don't know. Yeah. The one up, the one like this. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's supposed to be Joseph. <laughs> Um, where is it? It's not, we, are we at that? Have we read that passage yet where Joseph is like, what are you doing? Um, I don't think we have, right? No. Okay. So we'll, <laughs> we'll get there. That's why I chose, that's why I chose that painting. Cause I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> he's, he's not supposed to watch it. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, so let's talk about this. What, I mean, what do you notice? Where does Joseph place his sons and what does Jacob do? Let's 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 say that out loud so we we have the right pictures in our head, right? He puts them down so that the older one will be blessed with the proper hand. With the proper hand, he's on the right hand. Yeah, so he puts them down. The older one, he, like where he thinks the older one is supposed to be blessed with the right hand, the proper hand. And Jacob, um, it's interesting. Jacob's blind, right? Not maybe not blind. His eyesight is dim. Okay, he reminds us of Isaac, um, uh, and he. But he, so he intentionally, he, he seems to know well enough though that he can cross, he crosses his hands. I don't know if he sees them and he is able to do that or if he's just anticipating. He's like, oh, I'm sure he put them on my right side and he's crossing his hands, but he's, he knows and he crosses his hands. Um, and we talked about how this is different. There's no deception here. Jacob is showing an expression here of, of, of grateful faith to, to God for letting him see Joseph and his sons. Ross notes, the iron, uh, the irony, uh, in, there's irony in the fact that this incident is comparable to the situation in which he had received the blessing over his older brother. Yeah. Once more, the blessing was given to the younger, but this time there was no deception or bitterness. This time the blessing was given openly in accordance uh, with God's plan. Okay, let's continue on. And then he, uh, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God uh, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Okay, so in this blessing to his grandsons, there's a, grandsons, there's a lot that Jacob says about God. And I always think it's interesting to hear these patriarchs, early patriarchs, and what they believe and think about God, because they don't have the, the written text like like we do, or like the audience would have had. Um, and so they're learning about God through their, just purely through their experiences with him and what they've heard from their forefathers. But here it seems to be purely from his experiences. Uh, who, who is God? Who is God to Jacob? What does he think about God? Okay, so God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. So it's a specific um, person. If I can put it that way. How much he recognizes he's God of everything, but he knows specifically the promise. Right, right. That's right. Okay, what else? Been my shepherd all my life since one life yeah, shepherd. Shepherd is specific, I think, to me. You know, it's a it's a God who cares, a God who is intentional, guiding. And right. This is the patriarch of a, of a 
That's right. That's right. He's not just using that abstract. Right. It's not nonchalant. It's a very uh, real. Um, you know, he he exactly right. He knows exactly what a shepherd is and what a shepherd does, and how important a shepherd would be to a sheep. Yeah. Which, okay. Well, like Al said, J- Jacob's not foreshadowing, but maybe no, God is. No. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's good. Um, okay, uh, one more, one more. What else is he? It's kind of odd that the angel. Yeah, it's the word for uh, we see for messenger. The uh, what is it? Uh, Meliach, or uh, it's it's the word that can mean angel or messenger. So the the one who has, but what has he done? What has he done? Redeemed, redeemed, yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> so it's the gal. It's the it's the verb we see a lot in the Old Testament. I think of Boaz every time I hear that that verb, right? Because Boaz is the kinsman redeemer of Naomi. Um, here's what the Net Bible has a helpful note it says. Gaal has the basic idea of protect, as a near relative might do. It is used for buying someone out of bondage, marrying a deceased brother's widow, paying off debts, avenging the family, and the like. The meaning of deliver, protect, avenge are most fitting when God is the subject. This dictionary says act as a kinsman redeemer, mm-hmm. avenger, revenge, mm-hmm. ransom. Yeah, it's it's a wide range of uses that word, but I think uh, deliver, uh, protect. Um, maybe there's a recognition of what uh, God has done for Jacob, despite Jacob's continual wrestling against God. Well, you mentioned wrestling. Yeah. Uh, of course, the, when you talk about angel, that's what, yeah, that's what Jonathan is one suggesting. Of the, one of the in, in Jacob's life was when he wrestled with the angel. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, and I know I don't think Al agrees with me. It's about the Al's not back there. He had to take a phone call. But yeah, go ahead. So you, you can say whatever you want. Be free. Be free, John. It's the free and part of Christ. That's what it is. The angel, the messenger. It is a more specific word than just Elohim. It is. It's not, it's, it's different, right? It's not just, right. Okay. Well, that we're, we're not going to, we're not going to touch that right now. It, what, who, who the angel was wrestling Jacob, but it is a more specific word and it's a specific action. Okay. So that's, that's important. Um, good. All right. What is Jacob praying for in regards to the boys? What is, what is Jacob praying for them? Mm-hmm. So that the name, his name would continue. And the names of Isaac and Jacob. And they would grow into multitudes in the midst of the earth. Okay, so what does that, what does that remind us of? The, the covenant. Yeah, that the covenant, that they would, um, he would continue to be faithful to them in the, the promises he has made through the, through the covenant. Okay. <sighs> How much do we have left? Yeah. Yeah. 
So if his concern is returning to the land, he's, he's praying that God would keep that promise that even though they're here now, they'll return to the land. Good point. Yeah. Remain in Egypt. And, you know, and yeah. for all we know, those, they, 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 there's nothing to do with those, but these two sons now become part of people. Yeah, they do. I, I do think that um, um, Jacob earlier mentions that uh, any sons that Joseph has would be part of those tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. So any future sons would be concluded in that. I think he does. I. I could be wrong. Y'all, y'all can check me on that later. I'm going to keep going. But, but yeah, I, I, uh, that's, I, I think that's what he does. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, uh, uh, but Jacob would be concerned because he's in Egypt right now and he wants God to bring them back to Canaan. Sure, certainly. Okay. Um, where, 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 where? 17. Thank you. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Okay, and so the picture there with his covering his face. Um, oh, he can't see. He doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe. Um, and Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this is one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Okay, now we're used to, I mean, Joseph is the good example in this narrative, right? He's the one who acts faithfully, acts with wisdom. We've mentioned this before. There doesn't seem to be anything, you know, wrong that Joseph does here. And so when we hear Joseph speak, it's uh, the temptations be like, yeah, Jacob, uh, Joseph, you got it. You got it wrong with your hands. Um, but right. Right. He's probably, yeah, he's probably used to having that authority. OK. And so we asked that question. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? But Jacob, um, Jacob is intentional here. Um, verse 19. But his father refused and said. And I love this. I know, son. Um, I know. All right. He seems to understand pretty well what, jo- what Joseph is thinking. He also shall become a great people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, "By you, Israel will. Uh, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh." And they do that later on. Uh, Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Um, So we see this, this, you know, this refreshing, like Jacob, he's he's not he's not doing things the way um, maybe he used to would have used to have done. He's not doing things by the conventional societal orders of the day where the firstborn is the one with the blessing. He seems to just have grown and matured. Had a lot of practice, like you said, <laughs> just a lot of life experience. Um, and it's, he's, it seems to be discerning the will of God here. So I, it's, it seems to me this is a testament to his faith and leadership in this moment in his life. So from the narrative perspective, mm-hmm. um, we had with Ishmael and Isaac a reversal, because you would have expected that Paul would be the
easily. Okay, yeah. So, so maybe there's some growth in the family. So it's one of the issues has been how, how does a dysfunctional family <laughs> going to grow in faith? Right? So this is a, even though Joseph has the same human reaction of, no, that's not right, thinking he knows what God's doing, um, he, he apparently accepts that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's interesting that Jacob <clears throat> was the ones that was reversed. Yeah, by his own manipulation in a way. He is right, right. right. now doing the reverse in turn. Right. I think when we were back with uh, Jacob, um, we thought that that uh, his mom knew that he was going to be preferred, but it was the manipulation was bad. But but in fact, that is the way it would have turned out. Yeah. Esau still would have. Like you said, there's like it seems like there might be a little bit of hope for this this family here. This is, you know, I mean, this is not what you have come to expect from the family of Jacob and Israel. This is you just assume that this just was written before they were in the land, correct? Um, well, I mean, I mean, you know, it wasn't being written by Moses, obviously, yes, but so. some of it's clearly written after there. Okay, because there's a reference to Dan. Okay, as being the northern part of okay. the promised land. So at least some of it comes afterwards, or else the place names are changed in order to make things clear. So mm-hmm. already the readers would know that Ephraim was the greater tribe. Uh, I mean, not that Jacob would know, but I mean the readers would have known. And again, proper. Do you think that that's the greater that it's the greater tribe? I mean, what do you mean by that? I guess uh, it's a large. Well, I mean it is, becomes a leader leader of the north. Yeah. But not in the plant area. I just didn't know which. Oh, okay, okay. People, population. I don't know. Oh, okay. We can look it up. Okay, beginning of Exodus. Let me finish this passage. Let me let me get through it here. Um, then Israel said to Joseph, because we're right at the end. Oh, I like Walk, Walkie's quote here. Uh, Jacob's finest hour. Jacob has assumed total and dynamic leadership of the family. When you think uh, when you think Joseph is in charge, Jacob uh, assumes leadership here, and that's good. Um, even blind and on his deathbed, Jacob is able to faithfully discern the wisdom of God over conventional uh, thinking. Verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Very important thing for Jacob and very important for uh, for everyone else to hear as well. Verse 22. More. Moreover, I have given to you rather to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Okay. And what does that mean? Uh, there, are, it can mean three different things. The Net Bible has a helpful note. Um, one, uh, it can be uh, J- Joseph was either he was giving one portion above his brothers, or two, the mountain ridge he took from the Amorites, or three, Shechem. The ambiguity actually allows for all three to be the reference. Uh, he could be referring to the land in Shechem he bought in Genesis 33, but he mentions here that it was acquired by warfare suggesting that the events of chapter 34 are in view, even though at the time he denounced it. Joseph was later buried, in his bones at least, were buried in Shechem, in the book of Joshua. All right. Um, although Jacob is soon going to die, he gives Joseph the assurance that his family will continue on and will one day leave the land of Egypt to return to the land of Canaan. Jacob trusts the promises of God at the very end of his life. And that's the end of our passage, and i got to end. I'm going to just read this reflection uh, that I have on your handout here. We see once again that God's ways are not the ways of man. 
the primary blessing in the societal conventions of Joseph's day were to be given to the firstborn son. Yet we see again, as we have seen before, that God is not limited to accomplish his purposes by the rules of humankind. In God's sovereignty, he does as he pleases with his people. Even someone as faithful as Joseph and as good an example as he is in this entire narrative has to conform to the wisdom of God. And Jacob demonstrates that for him. Um, and then Ross has a good note that I'll end with. Believers learn throughout life to accept God's crossing up of the normal conventions, for God's ways are not the ways of humankind. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, um, thank you again for the story of Jacob. God, uh, uh, it, is, uh, it can be difficult for us to, to live faithfully, to trust you. When we see things around us going on, and they're not uh, according to the plans that we had for our lives and for ourselves. And so, God, I, I hope this story is a helpful reminder to us that you'll use it as a helpful reminder that even though things are going to the way that we think we sh- they should and the, according to our plans, Lord, that, uh, that your plans are better than our plans. And so, Lord, in, in the midst of all that, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.